0: afraid to admit this, um, but I'm not sure I've seen a single Star Wars movie completely through. Uh, I knew it. And if I did, it was with my cousin as a teenager and I was disinterested and wanting to watch something else. And I know what this does. It makes many of you question my judgment and my childhood, so questioning my parents' judgment. Uh, And I do plan on correcting the error of my ways and watching them all. And no, I do not have a specific time picked out yet. Um, So in case you're wondering if I have it planned for this weekend, no, I do not. I say that because I did a little bit of research on the ever-true Google and found that the second movie in this original three that were made, I think it's The Empire Strikes Back, is considered by many to be the best one, though I'm sure if you're a fan of Star Wars, you have some disagreement there. And there's only one reason I'm saying that, uh, is this, we're in part three of the all spiritually functional, and I want you to know you might have missed the best one, so just a heads up there, and I want to lower expectations for this weekend because we are on part three, the third installment uh, from the ten verses. Thus, when it goes up on the screen, you see Titus two eleven through fifteen you think what happened there it 's because i 've taken too long to work through ten verses, so I promised to finish uh, the ten this week, but this is a critical component in Titus. these ten verses. Uh, I wouldn't say heart, but it's a central portion of the book, and it's driving the church to understand that they need to all be functioning for there to be a healthy church, that that a healthy church takes a healthy congregation. And so the whole discussion began with older men, and it talked about living a clear-headed, spiritually stable, and a grounded-in-the-faith type of life. They were never to waver in their hope, found in Christ. There was a call to that stability that they would never doubt, they wouldn't question. Uh, And this idea of showing love, godly love to the whole congregation, and then manifesting biblical perseverance uh, to be an example of what it looked like to walk through hardship and temporal disappointment and loss and still actively serve the Lord. So older men were called to be this stabilizing Force in the congregation. Older women were called to be a beacon of holiness. They were an example of holy demeanor that highlighted the Savior. One of the things that they sent uh, Paul was writing to, to Titus was that they would keep their identity in Christ, which becomes a critical component of all ten verses. Is identifying in Christ, having that be your identity, having that be a priority. Uh, they showed that by not gossiping, not being overtaken in excess but instead being controlled by the Holy Spirit. They were called to be teachers of what is good, and then zeroing in specifically on teaching the younger women who were called through their actions and character to make the home a priority, recognizing that they function as and, and it's not a perfect illustration, but as the engine of the family, they're engaging in an active love, being self-controlled, having a holy reputation regarding marital purity, which, as I mentioned last week, was not the norm in society. Sometimes we think something goes way back that that marriage was this perfect institution in that society. Not at all. Uh, corruptness was, was accepted, was assumed, and so having a pure relationship was something that would have emphasize Christ. They were making the spiritual growth of their home first and examining outside opportunities in light of that role. Uh, They responded biblically to their husbands. They allowed for his spiritual headship, the stability, the direction. If I'm giving an illustration, nothing is perfect, but there is the steering component where the wife functions oftentimes as the engine And the husband then functions oftentimes as the steering. He's providing direction, safety, and provision so that she can be that engine, that driving force or power forward as the family. And this is what Paul is emphasizing, and you're going to see this. He's emphasizing the home as a unit, shedding an evangelical light. And then we're going to see here in your work that you're going to have an opportunity to be the light. But as the home, becomes a bright evangelical beam of light into the darkness around it. So with all that in mind, older men, older women, and by the way, we, we've kind of established that from literature and from what Paul says, that it's uh, over 50 would be considered older men and older women. And then so we're talking now moving to younger men, which would be anybody under 50 in the mind or culture of the day. And it says, young men likewise exhort, To be sober minded. In all things, showing yourself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say to you. So these younger men, under fifty years of age, are given in all honesty, one direct admonition, and that's to be sober-minded. I don't know if Paul's thinking they're so uh, short-focused that they can only handle one thing, but he starts with this one idea to exhort them to sober-mindedness, and then he moves on to talk about Timothy's, uh, Titus's life, and he says, you need to be an example to these young men of what they need to do. And so woven into the admonition to the young men is the example of Titus, who is a young man. Now, being sober-minded transcends all components of the age brackets. Older men, older women, younger women, and then younger men are all called to be sober-minded. The same Greek word is translated discreet for the younger women and temperate for the older men, and they all mean self-controlled, sensible in everything. And then Paul says to Titus, this is what you need to do, and this is it by definition, what the young men need to emulate. And then he uses a word that starts it out. He says, exhort the young men. He says, I want you to urge them strongly. I want you to push them earnestly. And I want us to understand something that Paul is zeroing in as he hits this, that this is no casual request for the young men, that the emphasis behind self-control has been ramped up as we deal with the younger men. Sober-minded, be self-controlled, be show good judgment, have common sense, and this is the critical part, be grounded spiritually. And so what Paul is saying is as he tells Titus, focus on the young men and I want you to tell them to be sober-minded. He means that they need to be self-controlled emotionally, not giving into their immediate emotion, not reacting in irritation, anger, fear. There's there's a call not to justify our response to things in the realm of our emotions, to have our emotions in control. Uh, Beyond emotions, you're self-controlled physically and mentally, not allowing the desire of the moment to justify actions. Don't give permission to yourself to pursue temptations, self-controlled. You are not on the whim of your emotions. You're going to contain those and have a framework. You're not going to let what spurs your mind or your physical body to say, I'm going to pursue this desire and make an excuse for it. But beyond the emotional, mental, and physical, and this is the critical point, we must be self-controlled spiritually. Displaying self-control, and the idea is discipline, in our walk with Christ. Paul, on purpose, exhorts the young men to be sober-minded, to zero in, and they need to think about being self-controlled spiritually, which involves pursuing God's Word and the growth that comes from it. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, It says, Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. To do that means you're in Scripture, Because knowing Scripture will shape and form life to be what God desires it to be. Scripture will apply control without which you will never be self-controlled in the way that God desires you to be self-controlled. And I hope we can see something as we look at this, because we look at different people and say, oh, that's a very self-controlled person. They keep their emotions in check. They keep their responses in check. They exercise control over themselves. And Paul is looking for something way beyond what we can physically do ourselves. He's looking for scriptural control, that we are built and formed in Christ, in his word, and that then builds the framework in our life. Uh, Later on in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, verses we know, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. When Paul is telling Titus, exhort the young men... Make sure the young men are sober-minded. The depth of what he's talking about is they need to be in God's Word. They need to be shaped by God's Word. They need to know it. It needs to form their life. It needs to guide their life. We must be in His Word, diligently seeking its shaping influence and control over our lives. And I say that on purpose to emphasize this. How many times do we go to Scripture to be affirmed in what we do, to be happy with what we already agree with in Scripture. We read Scripture, and we say, okay, I read Scripture, and and I agree with that. It just affirms what I already believe. How many of us are seeking to go into Scripture on a daily basis to be corrected by God's Word, to be instructed in something we didn't know and as something we should be applying? That's what Paul is talking about. This is not reading God's word to affirm your theological bent. It's reading God's word so that it changes who you are, that it builds you. And that's the self-control that Paul is driving to. And as we talked about at the beginning of this, all of these admonitions at the different age bracket doesn't mean that we're off the hook. So when we were talking about the older men being an example of biblical perseverance, that is a call for the whole church to be biblical perseverers to handle temporal disappointment and follow through with Christ, to not make this world their home. But as we talk to the younger men, why is he doing it to the younger men? Why is the emphasis stronger here? Because this age bracket, this gender group is going to struggle with this. And so it's an admonition to the whole church to do this, but specifically to men under 50 that they be in the word, that it be the controlling function in their life, that they are not in charge of their life. That God would be in charge of their life. We will never be self-controlled as God desires it, emotionally, physically, mentally, or spiritually, without the chisel of God, which is His Word, forming and guarding and guiding our response to life, our actions of life. We must have His Word forming that and so that's why Paul writes specifically to Titus, the young men must be sober-minded. They must be under the control of God so that their thinking and their emotions and their actions will funnel or come from that. Be self control Paul writes to the young men. And then he says, follow the example of Titus. This is a letter written to Titus. I'm sure something that he's going to share with the churches on the island of Crete But the bulk of the instruction now to the younger men is tied up in what Titus is supposed to do. This is what younger men should see and follow. An example that Titus must set or negate the counsel that he's given, right? Failing to live out his own advice would undermine God's truth and just prove him a hypocrite. Let's be honest, it would prove or undermine Paul's authority. So Titus has a a big task in front of him, But but Paul doesn't want to shift the focus from the younger men, so tucked within the younger men's counsel is, hey, Titus, this is what you need to do. You need to live this out. I think it's also helpful that when you look at Titus and then it ties to the younger men, recognizing that there's no station in the church that puts you above what Paul is writing for you to do. That nobody, whether they're preaching, teaching, is above, quote-unquote, scriptural mandates. And so he needed to show some things, things that we need to follow, and he's going to begin by doing good works, doing what is genuinely and inherently good. But I emphasize this, doing something active in ministry. This is not a passive call. One of the things I'll highlight at the end, and as you see the older men and the older women, and they have so many shaping influences in the church, but as you get to the younger women and the younger men, the idea is functioning, that they are engaged in doing, that the call to be broadcasting is emphasized at their age group. He and we must have also good doctrine. We needed, he needed to teach, talk, live the pure, uncorrupted truth of Scripture, which to tie all the way back to the Spiritual self-controlled means you're deeply engrossed in God's Word and seeking to know what He has to say. I would challenge us all as we dive into the Word, sometimes we dive in and we find affirmation of our ideology. We find how we want to live, our our biblical or our worldview, minus the biblical sometimes, and we attach Bible to it, which is we twist God's Word to affirm what we want to do. What Paul is saying is, I want your doctrine to be good, and what he means by that is inherently tied to Scripture, biblical. So as we go to God's Word, we're not twisting what He said to fit what we want to do, or how we want to live, or what we've been taught. But instead, as we walk to His Word, if we're going to have good doctrine, then we will have what we think shaped by Scripture. How we perceive the world to be shaped by Scripture. I know in in a group this size, we've all come from varying backgrounds, different circumstances, different experiences, different teachers through all the years that we've been studying in school or had even I call casual or organic teaching in our lives, and that forms and shapes us. And sometimes we become so entrenched in what we've been taught and and what we know our traditions and how we see things that we neglect to have Scripture rewrite the story, that we neglect to let Scripture be the formative part of doctrine. Paul is giving no excuses to Titus. Make sure your doctrine is good. Make sure there's no corruptness to that doctrine, and there's only one way for that to be the case when it's driven from God's Word. Through it all, he says, living an overall good life, meaning, as MacArthur notes, a serious life that is fixed on God and honors whatever honors Him. That's what's meant by the words gravity and sincerity, living a dignified life, one that is prioritized on bringing God glory. The temptation often for younger men is to live for their own glory, to build their own career, to build their own life, to build their own status, to get their own fame, to to make sure they accomplished, they make their mark on life, right? Isn't that not the vernacular we hear? This is your life. This is your time. This is your chance. I've heard from plenty of people, not in a negative way, oh, your 40s are your best time. I think the best time is wherever you're at. Right now is your best time. But oftentimes, this is when you make your mark. This is when you're smart enough and you're still young enough. to All those things build to this idea of living a life for your glory. And what Paul is saying is make sure younger men learn the lesson that the older men are exemplifying, that you may face temporal disappointment, but we need to not link that to eternal disappointment, that we don't need to focus on the here and now. It doesn't mean you don't make anything of your life, and you should go live in a tent in Hawaii on the beach, right? I had a friend in college, had a cousin. That's all he did. That was his goal in life, surf, live in a tent, file for unemployment, and he was doing it very well, and our government does allow you to do that, apparently. That's not what he's talking. The good life, the idea is that though you may deal with disappointment, though you may not achieve the, the CEO status in your business, you may not get the promotion you had hoped for, maybe even deserved, not even from a persecution standpoint. It just didn't fall the way it, it wanted to, that that isn't the priority of your life, that the good life says God's glory is the priority that I can handle the temporal disappointment because I serve a different kingdom. And that's the emphasis Paul drives in in that idea of gravity and sincerity. It doesn't mean we don't laugh or have a good time, but it does mean we know how to distinguish between what is important and what is trivial. We know how to understand what is eternal and what is temporal And if we're to be who God called us to be, if we're to function, then we must be able to prioritize His glory and His kingdom. And so, as we engage in this good life, we make sure that it is filled with good communication. Paul wraps up with a sound speech that cannot be condemned. How often do we ruin our testimony with what we say? How we respond often is shown in our words. You're angry. What do you typically do? You use words to express it. As you walk through life, you're not going to avoid this idea of communication. And Paul says, make sure you have sound speech that cannot be condemned, speech that is healthy, edifying, life-giving, and appropriate, speech that clearly shows you are redeemed and that glorifies and promotes the Redeemer. It doesn't mean that you're only talking about religious things, that you're only talking about the Bible, that you can't talk about football or the weather or or a hobby or enjoyment. It just means that everything you say in any context or anything you're talking about, it is shaped by this idea of being sound, that it cannot be condemned. Why is this example so critical? Paul says, so that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say to you. I want you to realize it's not to be a zinger. The point is evangelical or evangelism. The example of Titus, the prescribed character specifically for young men, would encompass the all of life, and those attacking and undermining the faith, those undermining Christ, will be put to shame by their false accusations. We are to remove any potential for fair accusations. You're going to be falsely accused, that's a given. This world has shown that. We've seen that even in our own country where Christians are falsely accused. They're attacked for various things, but it is a false accusation. Paul says, remove any chance for fair accusation. Have a testimony that will ultimately be a light in certain people's minds and hearts. I put as a our, our question here, are the young men and, and in all the church really self-controlled in their emotions, their physical lives and thinking? in their spiritual walk? Are we building the habits needed to be self-controlled? And I'm going to summarize it in one thing. Are we immersed in his word so that it shapes the balance of our life? Self-control is not about you getting a grip on your life. It's about God having a grip on your life. That you're so connected to God's word that when you hit a situation, hit a circumstance. It's not that you have to say, well, let me pause, and we think about, that God's word pops to mind, that it forms and shapes your response. You want to have and be self-controlled as God desires it, be immersed in his word so that it is the shaping force of your life. It provides the balance needed. And then are we like Titus, doing good works, talking good doctrine, living a good life, and having good communication? So young men must recognize The active responsibility laid upon their shoulders. One, they often leave for others or postpone to later. See, as you reach the older side of life, life's bumps and bruises and the work you've done often are your reason for checking out. I've done what I need to do is oftentimes what's heard. And then the younger side of life says, Hey, we're trying to build a life and we don't have time for this. We'll do this later. Do you realize what happens? No one's doing it. No one's taking care of it. But Paul makes very clear that that under 50 group, we have a call to be very active, to be very functional, just as the younger women were called to a functional love, the younger men are called to be functioning in this life, in every avenue that is provided, doing good, understanding and teaching good doctrine, living godly, and speaking what edifies. We're to be active specifically in engaging our world, though it doesn't exclude the older generation, nor does it exclude younger women, but that call for the men is to be engaging our culture, and this is Very evident from what Paul is saying, we must know truth and then communicate and live it. Younger men are called to be that impact in their society. As the younger women are called to be the engine in the home, that's this beacon, that's this evangelical light, we are called to make sure that our impact is seen in the world around us. So it's a consistent conversation, it's a consistent light that's there. And then as Paul wraps up this idea of of how we're to behave, our character, what it takes in in the individual ages and areas, he now addresses an area that is very common, one that the majority of the world engages in, in some form or other, and that is employment, the idea of work. Now it's Tucked in the employment of their day, what, was, what prevailed for them. So he writes Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And so Paul has moved through all the age brackets in the church to what is kind of common to us all in this idea of work. I want us to understand a little bit the context of when this letter was written, though. It helps us see this. During that time, there were many slaves from various regions of the world and ethnicities. Uh, There were slaves that were lawyers, doctors, teachers, took care of the kids, to working in the fields, doing everything that's there. And what you have to understand is as he addressed the slave population then, he was addressing people from all skill and work perspectives. So he's running the whole gamut of how we would be professionally. Uh, This is in no way Paul's affirmation of slavery. As you look at the Roman Empire, as you read about the Roman Empire, you're going to watch the Roman Empire, one, collapse, But as you see it grow, as you see Christianity planted, you start seeing that the system of slavery gets disintegrated out of that culture. And the major influence is Christianity. Sadly, being sinful human beings, we see slavery continue to rear its ugly head. The principles, though, that Paul is trying to teach do apply, though, today and into our culture. And and I was reading, uh, it was John MacArthur again, he noted this, "...throughout history, including in our own day, working people have been oppressed and abused by economic intimidation that amounts to virtual slavery, regardless of the particular economic, social, or political system." And, And he writes that because he's saying this, "...Paul's teaching therefore applies to every business owner and every worker." And so as we look at this in our context, we're seeing this in the realm of employment." The implication that he's writing to people that were enslaved only will strengthen our application of it, and we'll talk about that as we get to it. In these instructions, we must do as workers in society, and and I mentioned this, maybe you are the business owner. Well, there's two components. As a business owner, you know you serve your client, so you are serving somebody, And, and very importantly, Paul is writing to you so you understand how you should respond and how you should be acting because he references this even though you may have a bad boss or in their context, a bad owner. But as we dive in, we don't want to miss this idea, and that's that we adorn the doctrine of God. And what does that mean when it says adorn? It means to decorate, to put in order, which means to make clear the truths of the gospel. And and the driving thing for, and understand this, as a slave, you would have been at the lower echelon of society, and Paul is writing in this context saying, you will make clear the gospel, that your voice and influence will not be removed, that God will work through that position and accomplish his purpose. And then as we apply it to our culture, as we look at this idea of employment and work, No matter where you fall on the ladder of management or not in management at all, you are told that you make a difference for Christ in your work. And it begins with this idea, and and none of the concepts are, are easy or even popular. First, it says, obey your employers. We submit the whole time we're employed, no matter how unreasonable the boss becomes. And I want us to remind us, Paul applied this to people who did not have the option to change their position or place. They're stuck. Paul says, obey this person and you're stuck with them. He's not making light of the situation. It's horrific. We are free workers. We can quit. We can leave our employment. And so how much more are we to obey our employers while we're employed? Employed. Submit to the authority within the bounds of Scripture, obviously, as long as we are employed there. What's a good testimony for Christ? Submit to your employer while you have a job. That while you take a paycheck, you make sure that you are not rebelling against those in charge. And I want to remind us, He's writing to people that had no option, and being owned by somebody is horrific. Being under their fiat, their dictate is, is awful, and so they were to obey even given those circumstances. We're to obey and then to show excellence in our work, to please them well in all things. Do a good job. Do a good job no matter how you are appreciated. You are not working to please them in that sense. You are working to please your Savior, and that everything you do will be highlighted and, and point to Him. And so Paul says, you're going to submit to the authority that's in place there, good or bad in the realms of Scripture. You will do excellent work while you're employed there. This doesn't mean that you can't leave this employment. It just means that while you're employed, you do a great job. Why? Because you want to please Christ, and you know that He values your work. And everything, we're also to be respectful in our employment, that's the whole idea of not talking back or mouthing off. This is not talking about standing up for our convictions. It's not talking about not standing up for what we believe to be right and just, but it is talking about not elevating our self-interest and preferences. We do our work in a respectful way, and then we maintain honesty at work, that idea of not stealing, and they say not perlorning. It means that you don't think about what you can get away with. Oftentimes, people are like, well, we don't have to work that hard. They don't notice. They don't care. Uh, we can take this. We can grab that. We can, we can borrow this extra benefit. Paul says, don't do that as an employee. Be honest. Don't think about the extras we deserve. Instead, make sure nothing is taking that we remain above reproach. And in all things, to be loyal at work, showing all good fidelity. All of this is in the context of your employment. What if you can't continue that? And I've, I've seen uh, some individuals in our church that have shown a, a beautiful biblical illustration of what you do. I know of one person who walked through a very difficult work circumstance. They were diligent at work up until the point where they left that work. Because guess what? You can quit the job and take another one. But be a testimony to the end of working and serving His kingdom what is the outcome? We bring credit to gospel truth. We live out the real change that has taken place in our lives. Our character and life are dedicated to pointing to the Savior. I'm saying this because I know we think, well, I'm gonna, I'll am going be a good example because then my horrible boss will get saved. There's no promise of that, no guarantee of that. But you will have lived and done what God has called you to do. Why? And again, I quote a commentator here, wrote this, Our supreme message to the unsaved about God is that He is our Savior and desires to be their Savior as well because He is not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. We are to let them know by what we say, by what we do, and by the way we work at our job that God is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Paul ends This admonition for character, this idea of how we're going to live and how we're going to highlight the gospel, because don't lose sight of this. Titus is about being a light in your community, about how the church is an evangelical beacon to the world of what it means to follow Christ. And then I put this question, but is that our driving motive at work? When we go to work, do we have in mind that I will serve and I will perform and I will do this job because I am going to bring credit to gospel truth that I'm different than everyone else, that I will function differently. A healthy church is filled with spiritually functioning believers at all ages and stages of life, and I put it all stations in life. Paul covered that by showing that even at the lowest echelon in their society, that they would function and be a beacon for Christ. Paul ends his charge addressing These young men calling them to be doing good, that means godly ministry-type work, speaking and understanding biblical doctrine, living and speaking in a way that glorifies the Savior. The imprint of God's Word must be clear in their lives, and as we know, for that to be the case, it has to be a daily part of life. Young men are called to a functional role, called to be in the middle of things and responding and acting as one who is spiritually controlled. And I'm going to say it again, and you're going to say, Kenny, you've said this a thousand times. If you walk away with nothing, walk away with this. They have to be in the Word so their actions and reactions are from the Word. To be a healthy church, to have healthy people in the church which make up a healthy church, we have to be in God's Word so that how we act and how we react only come from Him. They need to see a gospel priority in every facet of life. Paul highlights, again, doing works, thinking doctrine, acting and living, which is being seriously and biblically minded in our habits and hobbies, along with communication, talking in a way that opened doors for truth, not shut doors for truth. I still remember it's years ago, and I would have been a younger man, but still in this young man category, and I responded horrifically in anger to a truck driver. And to this day, and it's been 20-some years, I know that my mouth, my words, did not highlight the gospel, did not open the door for truth, and actually slammed it shut, that my ability to influence this person in any way, shape, or form was destroyed in that moment. Did he do what I told him to do? Of course he did after he got yelled at. But did it accomplish a gospel purpose? Absolutely not. Did it shut the door for gospel impact? It most definitely did. And it's those type of real-life illustrations, I hope, will take and apply and say, no, how I respond, I will have in my mind how this will influence my ability to present the gospel. doesn't mean that people can do whatever they want and walk over you so that you can have a gospel voice. You won't have one then either. But it's how we respond, being controlled by Scripture, because there was another way to accomplish the same thing, a biblical way, that would have left the door open for gospel truth. And then Paul tied in work, a sphere that covers the gamut of ages and genders, right? We all have work. And make sure that we've not neglected to have what we do for a living permeated with a clear gospel influence. And that's the idea of going to work, yes, to do your job, but to recognize that you're there with an opportunity to form and shape other people's lives, that you are an example of the gospel, that you have opportunity through that work to present God's truth. Through all these verses, we find something kind of comes out, and that's our home and our work are key areas of impact for Christ. A spiritually healthy church has spiritually healthy congregants living in all the areas from home to entertainment to work to social engagement with a gospel mindset. But going all the way back, diving in even to last week's sermon. Your home is a beacon. That is a light that shines into our community in a way that is unique. And then as we go and look at our work, we have an opportunity in our work to be a beacon for Christ. How is that possible? And I want to summarize it in one thought, and I mentioned it early on when it came to the older women one thought one one helpful permeating thing make sure your identity is in Christ and that is a constant thought and reality in your home life in your hobby life and in your work life because in the everything of your life you must actively and i highlight that word actively be his and respond from that foundation who is your identity Because that's what Paul is driving the church to be. We're called to represent Christ. And if we want to summarize all of these in one thing, is make sure your identity is in Christ, that it is what you emphasize. When someone meets you, you have on your mind that you are representing Christ. Here's the big question, though. Are we willing to let go of our own identity so that His identity can shine clearly and distinctively through? Because you cannot represent two people. You cannot walk into this world and be you and also represent Christ. And that's what we've been caught up in, this dynamic, because we have a world that says, be you, be you, be you. And this is taking nothing away from the uniqueness of who you are and your personality as God has created you, but you are supposed to be representing Christ, and He will use who you are to represent Him to the best ability that you could have. But the big question is, can I let go of being me so that I can represent Him? Let's pray together. Dear Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to come together to study your word. We know that these verses are uh, sometimes difficult, uh, that, that they address who we are and, and address sometimes maybe things we've been taught that that we've believed in, that we support, that we go after, and, and scripture maybe steps on the toes of that, that, that confronts that thinking. And it's hard to change what we in our mind think we know. But I pray that as we look to be a light for you, that we prioritize your truth, we prioritize the gospel, we prioritize making Christ known, that we can let go of things maybe that we have locked into and instead follow your word. That we can make Your word, the shaping influence in our life, that when we come in conflict with maybe what we think, because it's always easy to believe what we already believe, but difficult when it confronts what we've made important. But Lord, as as you confront that in our lives, help us to submit to your word, to change according to what you have said, so that we can shine a light for you that we can accomplish being your ambassadors here, that we can keep prioritized as we do great work, as we, as we function in the different careers and skill sets that we have and do a great job and enjoy that, as we enjoy our hobbies and life and, and different habits. But, but ultimately, everything for your glory and emphasizing your priority, which is reaching the lost. Help us to be your ambassadors in a clear well. Help, help us to identify in you and be the healthy church that you've asked us to be, that you've exhorted us to be, so that we can accomplish your kingdom purposes. In your precious and holy name, amen.